you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis in chapter 18. Before we come to God's word, let's pray using the words of Psalm 19. The law of the law is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them is great reward. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. A little, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servants. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Uh, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Amen. God is holy. God is 
Father, Son and Holy Spirit, God is creator. But two foundational truths in God I want to speak about this morning. Truths that I trust you learnt from a very young age, that God is good and God is great. And sometimes the essence of Christian maturity is just believing the simple truths that we learned as children. God is great and God is good. God can do anything. God can do anything. And everything that God does is right. And they are two lessons, or the two lessons that we learn from Genesis 18. Lord willing, we will look at the second part, probably next Sunday. But there are two questions that underscore these two foundational truths. God is great and God is good. In Genesis 18, 25... Far be it from me for you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. God only and always does what is right and just. The question in the first half, the passage for today, is in verse 14, from the Lord himself. Is anything too hard from the Lord? Too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time I will return to you. This time next year, Sarah shall have a son. So this week, God is great. Next week, God is good. We will focus and return to verse 14. But in order to get to verse 14, let us understand the context. And as has been what I've been trying to do in recent weeks, think of this as scenes, a couple of scenes. The first scene is the visit, and the second scene, the announcement. Probably in your Bibles would be divided into paragraphs as well. So the first scene is the visit, the second scene, the announcement. So the scene, the first scene is the visit, verses 1 through 8. And we read in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now this is the second of three consecutive chapters in Genesis that begin with a divine appearance. The first is in Genesis 17, verse 1. If you remember, it says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham Abraham, and said, I am the Lord God Almighty. The first appearing, Genesis 17. The second is our passage today, but the third is Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And in the middle, chapter 18, where we are today, the Lord appears. He comes to Abraham, who's by the Oaks of Mamre. Which is, you know, the Oaks of Mamre is Abraham's de facto home. He doesn't own anything yet in the promised land. That doesn't come until he buys the cave of Machpelah in chapter 23. But most of the time we've seen Abraham and his family here in this region of Hebron near Mamre and this famous oak. The Lord appears to him. Now that is more of a heading because he he appears to him 
in the person of these three men. If you look at verse 2, Abraham lifted his eyes. He's sitting by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. My wife and I were talking about tents, because if you walk around Derwent Water these days, there's so many of these pop-up tents littering, littering the lake. I hope, I hope no one here is a wild tent. But anyway, he's sitting by the door of his tent, which would be a big thing in the heat of the day. He looks up, and seemingly out of nowhere, three men appear. Some commentators say he must have been sleeping, and they disturbed him. But I think it would say if he was sleeping. No, I think what we have from the beginning are hints that these three visitors are no ordinary visitors. He looks, and seemingly out of nowhere, out of the blue, three men approach him. I think it is meant to give us a sense of the suddenness of it. I think Abraham had suspicions that this was a special visitation from the beginning. It is true that at this time of the world, and in this part of the world, the expectation would have been a lavish hospitality. But Abraham exceeds even those highest expectations. So you can see from start to finish, Abraham seems to have some awareness that these people he is welcoming to his tent are no ordinary visitors. Just look at the urgency with which Abraham prepares. When he saw them, he ran. He ran from his tent door to meet them. He's an old man, but he's running as quick as he can to meet these three men. And in verse 6, he said that Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, you get the urgency. Three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Not sweet cakes, but flatbread it would have been. And then in verse 7, it said, Abraham ran to the herd and he took a young calf and gave it to a young man again. And it says, who prepared it quickly. In other words, this is a scene with fervent action. I had a sneaky thought. Is he, is he making the case for medium rare beef? But then I quickly moved on. But there's haste. There's running. There's quickness. There's urgency. Abraham ran to meet the three men. He bowed to the ground. And although there are three of them, he speaks in the singular at first and says, O oh Lord. Now, there's a little footnote if, you're, if you have an ESV with you, and it could be my Lord with a lowercase l, is the little footnote. But I think the text is right to put it uppercase, giving it divine name in Hebrew, Adonai. And Abraham knows somehow that this is a visitation from the Lord himself. If you look down in verse 13, you see with small capital letters, Lord. So at least one of them, one of the three men identified with a visible manifestation of Yahweh, Jehovah himself. So what we see is three men who appear to Abraham. One of them is the manifestation of Jehovah, and two are his angelic messengers. And if you just flip to Genesis 18, 22, 
just a bit further down. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Genesis 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So one of them, one of them is coming in the appearance of Jehovah, Yahweh, and the other two are his angels. These are no ordinary guests. Abraham bows and he says to the guests, let me wash your feet, then you can go on your way. Now it may seem at first glance that Abraham is not pulling out all the stops, but this is very in keeping with the cultural dynamic. If Abraham had said immediately, stay for dinner, I'm going to prepare an amazing feast for you, it would have been incumbent on them at that time in this place to say, no need to do that, we are on our way. So what Abraham does is strategic and deliberate. He says, rest, let me wash your feet, have a little food, have a little drink, then you can be on your way. But as they're having this little snack, as it were, Abraham runs into the household with urgency to get to work. He ran quickly to Sarah and said, quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Now, it's interesting to note that later in the Old Testament, when Abigail was preparing a meal for David's fighting men, his army, she had five seers of flour. Five seers of flour for an army. So three is a lot of food for three people. So that's what I mean, is that, you know, the context, this is an amazing feast. And Abraham goes and picks the best animal he can find and has a young man prepare it. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. Abraham and Sarah are not even dining with them because in verse 8, Abraham is standing by the tree while they eat. Why so much detail about the preparation of this meal? Why so much detail about the preparation of this meal? Well, two reasons. One is we're meant to see the difference between the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah here. And in chapter 19, the lack of hospitality that the angels receive in Sodom. We're meant to see the difference between the hospitality that the angels receive here from Abraham and Sarah and the lack of hospitality that they will receive from Sodom. This is how you treat your guests. More importantly, this is how you treat God and his messengers. And when they come to Lot and to Sodom, things will be very different. And the other reason we have this detail is to show us that Abraham, without realising it at all, is offering the kind of meal that will be later institutionalised in the sacrificial system. It says three seers of fine flour. And the use of fine flour later in the Old Testament is for the grain offering, the bread of the presence of the tabernacle. So this is the special flour that will later be used for the sacrificial system. And he goes out at great cost to himself to get the choicest animal, just like God in Leviticus 
will call for the best to be sacrificed before him. So Abraham, without realising it, is showing the way to offer to God what is best, what is costly, as a sacrifice to him. That's scene one, the visit. Scene two, the announcement. Verse nine, the men are looking for Sarah. They haven't come for this meal, although it is right and proper and it is good and honourable that Abraham and Sarah do it. But they've come with a message. Verse 10, I will surely, the Lord said, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now we've seen that promise a number of times already, but now the promise is moving from general to specific to very specific and very close at hand. And Sarah is eavesdropping. And when she hears that message, she laughs to herself. Abraham laughed in chapter 17. And he is not rebuked. We do not know what kind of laugh that was. But here Sarah is rebuked. He's given a reproof for her laughter. Was it a chuckle, a guffaw? Or a silent shoulders shrug? You notice that he says she laughed to herself. The translation is she laughed inside herself. She's trying not to be seen. So this is not a great big belly laugh, if you like, but she's struck by the absurdity of what she is hearing. (laughs) She is struck by the absurdity of what she's just heard. So the laughter is a laughter of disbelief. So the Lord reiterates the promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And then Sarah is confronted by the Lord and her laughter and she denies it in verse 15. Maybe she'd convinced herself this was just an internal smile. Maybe she thought that no one saw it. But it's a foolish thing to deny, especially before the Lord. It's easy to pick on Sarah, but if we're honest, we do the same thing. We think God does not know or see our sins. We certainly think no one else does. But sometimes we convince ourselves that God doesn't see. The Lord knows. It is a silly thing to do, to stand before the Lord and say, I did not laugh. The Lord says, of course you did. And it's so often in our lives... You compound one sin with another sin. My mother always used to tell me that if you tell a lie, you have to tell 15 others to get out of it. Sin always produces sin. You think that just one more sin will get me out of this jam. It never works that way. You can never manage sin. Do not convince yourself that one more sin will get you out of the mess that you're in. Never try and cover up sin with sin. Sarah had a moment that she could have simply said, you're right, I did laugh. I'm having a really hard time believing that this could be the case. But she adds to that sin of unbelief, the sin of deception. One commentator says this, and it's very insightful, fear moves people to do things that are irrational and uncharacteristic of them. Adam hid because he was afraid of God. 
Abraham deceived because he was afraid of what the Egyptians might do to him. Now Sarah is afraid because she has challenged the authenticity of a divine promise and because she has irked a divine visitor. Is that not true? Sin makes you do things that are out of character. Right in the moment she is afraid. But when you're afraid you want to cover yourself. That's what Adam did. That's what Abraham did. when she, He said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. That's what Sarah did. She said, no, I did not laugh. When you are afraid, you do things that are uncharacteristic of yourself. Irrational. And you add sin upon sin. And we see this at the end of very, very end of verse 15. It seems to us an odd way to end the scene. With the Lord saying... No, you did laugh. It seems kind of abrupt, but it had been obvious to the original audience that this was meant to be ironic. It was a play on words. Because it was a foretaste of the child that would be born. Because the Hebrew verb that ends verse 15 is sahak, is sahak. And it's the name of her son, Yishak. Isaac means to laugh. I don't know, I couldn't really explain it very well, but it's like in English, if we knew her son was going to be called Mark, and the story ends here. She says, I did not miss the mark, and the Lord says, you do not miss the mark. That's the only kind of comparison I can give. And I, we, would, we would get it, we would get it. He's going to be called Mark. You're going to name your son. So she, it ends with, I did not Isaac, which is going to be the name of the son. Yes, you did Isaac. And we know she's going to have a son whose name is Isaac. So Sarah, in her laughter, conveyed the assurity of the Lord's promise. Even in her laughter, she is conveying the assurity of the Lord's promise. She laughed. She's going to have a child called laughter, whether she believed it in the moment or not. So we come to the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It is a rhetorical question. We're meant to answer, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But if we're honest, we can sympathise with Sarah. We can understand her incredulity. Look at all the, of the reasons she has to disbelieve, really. The text is making it repetitively clear. Do you understand how impossible this is? Abraham and Sarah are very old. They're advanced in years. It says the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. A euphemism meaning her menstrual cycle had stopped. And she laughs to herself in verse 12. She said, I'm worn out. An expression used in the Old Testament to refer to clothes or sandals that are dirty or have holes in them, ready to be replaced. Sarah laughed and said, I'm worn out, I'm ready to be replaced. My Lord is old. Incidentally, Peter in the New Testament points back to this passage to say, this was Sarah showing respect and deference to her husband. She called him Lord. She called him Master. 
Now we have different terms of respect for submission. It may not have to be this one, but it is commendable. Peter said it points out it's commendable that Sarah, what Sarah did was commendable by calling Abraham Lord. And before anyone gets too excited about that, just notice that Abraham is also feverishly working to get the meal ready. So before you get too worked up about that, that is he is working hard to prepare the food. So he has the man help, he has Sarah help. But it isn't as if Abraham is, I've just got to go and take a call. I think in the amount of times I think I get away with stuff because I say, I've just got to go and take a call. And Sarah, can you quickly get a meal ready for these three men? No, he's, he is rushing to and fro. Sarah then says, shall I have pleasure? It could mean, will I have the pleasure of being a mother? In other words, this is a biological impossibility. Now for this old couple, this woman who calls herself worn out, this barren woman, this biologically impossible to be pregnant woman, it's not going to happen. And on, with all that stacked up on the side of impossibility, God says, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We can understand her incredulity, but the Lord wants us to see today, the 30th of May 2021, there may be 10,000 reasons why Sarah cannot have a baby. But what does it matter if God is on the other side? What does it matter? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It is not even hard for Him. This is not difficult for the Lord. Think of the most accomplished, gifted person you know. Maybe in person, or a hero from a distance. Maybe an athlete. I can name a few from last night. A musician. An academic. Whatever they do. And it may look easy, but it is not easy. If you're the best, you've worked extremely hard. You've practiced for hours. It is hard work to be the best of anything. And even when you're the best in sports, you still do not win every time. You may be the top of your game with success, but it is still incredibly difficult. Success is never guaranteed. Not so with God. This is not hard for God. It is like playing chess with a hamster. This should not be difficult. It is not hard for God. I want you to think about two categories. I want you to think about what God can do. But he's not given a sure promise that he will do it. And then I want to think about the things he can do and he has promised and he will and has. Because there are no doubt for you, whoever you are, there are things in your life right now that seem impossible to you. They may seem impossible to you. But do you believe that they're not difficult for God? Do you believe that they're not difficult for God? Now we need to be careful here, lest you run out of here and say, the pastor said this morning that my illness will automatically go away. All my dreams will come true. 
We do not have a promise for that. But sometimes we so guard ourselves against disappointment, we forget and stop to pray big prayers. Because we're conditioning ourselves for failure. So we guard ourselves against disappointment and we stop praying big prayers. We stop believing that God can do the impossible. God really can do the impossible. And we stop believing it because we've conditioned ourselves for failure. Maybe you have a relational problem in your life and you think this is never going to get better. Everything I do just makes it worse. There will not be one teeny weeny bit of thawing in this problem. Impossible it may be for you, but not for God. Not for God. Maybe there's an aspect of justice that you're seeking in your life or in our world. I weep at our world. I weep at it. And maybe there's some aspect that how can this, how can good come out of this? And everything in you screams, that's just not fair. And you think that nothing will ever get better. It is impossible. Brothers and sisters, it is not impossible for God. Or, or the impossibility that you have a loved one who is so far from the Lord that you think it is impossible, it's impossible that they could become a believer. 2 Timothy 2, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It is not a guarantee, but perhaps God can do this. Maybe a grandchild, a child, a friend, they are so far away, everything they're into, everything they believe, they couldn't be harder to the truth. There is no way. But there is God. There is God. Oh, what about evangelism? Do you think that the, the Lord could bring to Lake Road dozens of new believers in the years to come? That people through our witness and God's spirit would come to say, I want to know Jesus. I want to profess faith in Christ. What about mission, the sending and the going? Are you praying for breakthrough for the gospel in faraway places? Do you kneel by your bed and pray that the gospel would break through in the Muslim world? Or that there would be more believers in Japan? Do you believe that God can do more than you know how to ask? What discourages us in our country today? Division, wickedness, declension, a turning away from liberty and freedom. All manner of discouragement. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you believe that we can sing again in church? Do you believe that God will bring about a revival and an awakening by his Holy Spirit? Bringing people suddenly, swiftly, in great numbers to repentance. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can bring about a great awakening, to bring reconciliation among people who are estranged, reformation of our lives, of our doctrine, of our churches. Now, we don't have a promise, like Abraham and Sarah, that all of those things next year will come true. We do not want to presume upon the Lord. But there is a danger from some, sometimes for us as Reformed believers. 
We know not my will but yours be done. That is good. That is the posture of humility. But never let that stop you from praying impossible prayers. Looking out and asking God for things that you have no earthly way to see how they will come true. God loves to do impossible things, brothers and sisters. But then, that's one category. But the other category of the impossibilities that he can do and he has promised he will do. The things that we can be 100% confident of. Just as Abraham and Sarah should have had no doubting that God says you'll have a son this time next year. They should have sent out save the date. They should have sent out the confetti in advance. It was happening. What seemed a long way off was always there for God, marked on his calendar. What has God promised you? I can tell you. He's promised that there'll be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Now, you might know that intellectually, but do you know it top to bottom in your whole being? Do you know it that your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west? Paul didn't say just a little condemnation, a little smidgen, a micro-fraction of condemnation. Paul says, no condemnation. No condemnation. We ought to live lives as the happiest people on the planet. Because that is true. You're accepted in Christ. You're accepted before the only person whose acceptance matters. People get so uptight about so much acceptance, whether people like them online. It doesn't matter a jot. What matters is that you're accepted before the Lord of the universe. And you can live a life free of shame. You can live with a clear conscience. And you can go forward knowing that the worst can happen to you, which is death. And it is the best that can happen to you because you're in the presence of God. Do you believe that? This morning, do you believe that your sins are forgiven? Are you justified? Are you counted as righteous by faith? If we believe that, why are we so anxious to prove ourselves? Why are we so often so stubborn that my way is the the only way? Why are we so proud and arrogant? Why are we just so dumb? Why are we angry and difficult? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? That Christ's righteousness is counted to you? And what about the promise of heaven? No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. C.S. Lewis famously said, Christians are often accused of being pie in the sky. But he said the question is, is there really pie in the sky or not. Brothers and sisters, there, there is a heaven. I always remember it because it's one of the last walks I had with Peter Maiden and he turned to me and he said, James, when did you last hear a jolly good sermon about heaven? Well, we know where he is, but do you believe that there is heaven? 
We've lost loved ones. And if they died in the Lord, do you believe that they're experiencing such unending joy that you and I have yet to experience? That we have so great a salvation, so great an inheritance, so great a reward. Whether that reward comes to you this year or in 50, 60, 80, 100 years from now, do you bank your life on those promises? Isaac seemed a way off. Somewhere way in the future. Is it really going to happen? So is the promise of heaven. But it came. And Isaac came and heaven is real. One day heaven will come. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In the ESV you'll see a footnote. Or wonderful. And I think that may be the better translation. It's the word used in Job 37.14. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Isaiah 9. Wonderful counsellor. Is anything too wonderful for God? Just imagine your perfect day. Just bear with me a minute. Imagine what is your perfect day? Eating all the food you like, your favourite food, and suddenly it has negative calories. That'd be a great day. And just by eating the food, it gives you muscles and it takes away fat. That would be a good day, wouldn't it? And or you have your children with you and your family and friends and they're all getting along. No bickering. And you have a beautiful, picture-perfect day wherever you are. You're at the lake. I love the ocean the ocean, or you're in the mountains, or you're playing board games around the table. I hope you still play board games, wonderful things, board games. We're in the Champions League. Yeah, that happens. Or you're at the beach reading a book. Whatever that day is, and you think, this is it. This is it. This is happiness. It is not. Because God has days and eons for his people more wonderful than that. I want you to know that is true. God has eons and years and days for his people that are better than whatever imaginary thing you just did. Nothing is too wonderful for him. You've not yet begun to dream of how great God is and how many wonders he has in store for those who love him. My dear friend, God delights in doing the impossible. So with God... And with God alone, we can say, nothing is too good to be true. You say, that is too good to be true, maybe in this life, but with God, no. You can never say with God, that is too good to be true. It is true with God. So brothers and sisters, we have a God who is great. I want you to remember that today, for this week, this month. God is great. And there is nothing in your life, nothing in your life, Nothing in our world that is too difficult for him. And he has wonders yet to show you for those who believe. May the Lord bless the word for his glory, but for our eternal good. Amen.